Matthew chapter number one. We do have a lot of work to do in front of us this morning, um, and I need to be quick. I need to hurry. I missed some spots when I was weed eating yesterday, and I saw them as I left this morning, and you just cannot leave that as it is. Like, my mind is just not right right now. Um, no, seriously, we are going to recap Matthew. going to do it a little bit differently, a lot of work in front of us, and if we're not careful, apart from the Spirit's help, this will be little more than an information dump. However, with the Spirit's help, he might just magnify the beauty of Jesus Christ in such a way that we would be stunned in awe and wonder. Man, wouldn't that be good? Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Pray with me. Father, by your Spirit, give us eyes to see your matchless beauty. Give us ears to hear your gracious voice. Give us minds to grasp your wise teachings. Give us hearts that are yielded to your good and perfect will. We ask this today in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So I've got a theory. I want to start with kind of getting on a little soapbox for just a minute. I'm going to give you a theory. I'm going to tell you how this theory goes, and I'm going to explain to you why this is so important. So I believe, my theory, my working theory is this, that our understanding of Jesus, we either get that based upon either imagination or what we'll call revelation. Say with me, imagination, revelation. Here's what I mean by that. The source, the foundation upon which we build our understanding and our perspective of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's about, of the things that matter to him, we either get those ideas from what he's revealed to us about himself in his word, or we get those ideas from uh, our, our imagination. Not necessarily ours, it could be the imagination of somebody else. It could be, basically what I mean by that is that it's kind of a self-determined understanding of who Jesus is. This is who I think he is. So basically, let's think of it like this. It is either A, who he revealed himself to be in his word, or who I think he is. Now, here's what I'm finding in this theory, that most of us, myself included, kind of operate with a mixture of the two, okay? There's some things in me that are rock solid about Jesus, that are anchored in divine revelation, that are true based upon what he claimed to be, that are good and solid and anchored in biblical truth. There are also some things in my mind and in my heart that just aren't. We okay with that? There are some things in me that sometimes what happens is this, is I find that I have a more tailored approach to Jesus. Things that aren't founded on revelation at all and what I've done far too often, intentionally or not, is I've created a Jesus that looks a whole lot more like me than the one that's revealed in Scripture. That's a poor image of Jesus, by the way. Do not amen there, okay? A Jesus that looks like me is just, is just not enough. And so for many of us, this is, this is really easy to think about when you think about how, many, how so many different people can claim Jesus as their champion. Have you ever paid attention to this? How people from competing truth claims can claim that Jesus is their champion? So you've got the Mormon version of Jesus, you've got the Buddhist version of Jesus, you've got the Catholic version of Jesus, you've got the Christian or Protestant version of Jesus, you've got all of these other kinds of things. Think about it like this. Those who are on the farthest left of the political aisle, they claim Jesus as their champion. Those who are on the farthest right 
claim Jesus as their champion. And how can this be, right? How can so many people claim that Jesus is their champion? Is he the champion who emphasizes doctrine? Or does he emphasize justice? Or does he claim to be a teacher, maybe a mystic? Maybe he's a moral activist. I've heard even people say that he was a pacifist. Those two can't go together, right? Maybe he was some form of political revolutionary. All that aside, here's the point that I want you to understand. Is that if I do not fight and press deeply to know Christ as revealed in the scripture, I will ultimately settle for a Christ of preference. Let's say this again. If I do not press to know the Christ as he has revealed himself, I will ultimately settle for a Christ that I prefer. I will soften all the rough edges off of him as Philip Yancey spoke about. Or as Dane Ortland said, that I will project natural expectations about who God is onto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. And here's what I'm learning about all of this. That any version of him that is rooted in what I think more than what he has revealed is always a less and inferior version of Jesus. Okay, I want you to understand this. My, I could never create in my imagination or in the imaginations of all the thinkers of all of history, a Jesus that is better than the Jesus as revealed in Scripture. There's never a better Jesus than that. It's always less than, always inferior than. As C.S. Lewis so accurately said, so I can get my brownie points with Rick, <laughs> I need Christ, not something that resembles him. We say it again. We need Jesus. Not something that resembles him. Okay? And so all of this. If I do not do the good work of getting to know the Christ of Revelation, then I will always have a muted Christ with a severely diminished excellence. Always. So how do we do this? Well, to anchor our understanding of Christ in the Revelation, we return to the source material. We return to the Gospels. The Gospels inform us about Jesus. You know the whole Bible is about Jesus? Everybody shake your head. In the, in the Old Testament, Jesus is coming. In the Gospels, Jesus is here. In the epistles, Jesus is here in us. We might want to spend some time on those. That'd be good, right? In Revelation, Jesus is coming again to finish everything that he started. It's all about Jesus, right? But the Gospels predominantly zero in and tell us who he is, what he's like, what he does, what matters to him. And within the four Gospels, we learn the real Jesus. They're not congregational letters. They're not comprehensive biographies or chronological histories, which is very confusing, right? We can own that. They are instead very intentional narratives that have been carefully chosen. The material within it has been carefully chosen to tell the story of Jesus. And Matthew is one of these four. And these four, man, it's a beautiful study. We were talking about some of this this week. That if you study the nuance of the four Gospels and how they are so unique and yet they are telling the same story, it is this beautiful um, conglomeration of the person of Jesus Christ that just could not be put together any better. Like, it is beautiful how Matthew paints this picture, and Mark paints this picture, and then Luke comes along and says, hey, don't forget about this, and then John comes along and he says, oh, but this is what it all means. This is the very God himself with skin on him. I mean, it's just beautiful how it all unfolds in the scripture. We don't have time to do that, though I would love to, 
But Matthew, by far, is the most Jewish of the writings. That's why he starts the New Testament. Matthew is not the first of the four Gospels as far as the time that it was written, but he kind of brings to a conclusion and a climax everything that has been happening in the Scriptures until now. He brings the Old Testament story to its long-awaited climax. The story of Jesus is told by Matthew primarily to announce to the Jewish people that the long-awaited and expected king is finally here, and he has brought his kingdom and his rule with him. Okay, That's what it's all about. That's the story that Matthew is telling us. It is important to know that while his primary audience, and I want to say this, okay, Matthew is primarily writing to Jews, but he is not writing only to Jews. The gospel is to the Jew first and to the Greek also. It's never to the Jews only. Matthew's not to the Jews only. But it is to the Jews first. Here's, here's the problem we make when we get into Scripture, and I'll tell you these, and then we'll get moving into the text, okay? We make one of two mistakes whenever we dive into the Gospels. We either, A, make it all about us and nothing about them, or we, B, make it all about them and nothing about us. You with me? You tracking? Okay, so both of those are errors, right? There is some stuff that is absolutely about them. There's also some stuff that is absolutely about us. And we need the Holy Spirit's help to be able to get into those and to discern those. But all of that aside, Matthew writes this gospel so that Jesus Christ might be known. That's it. Hands down. You want to know Jesus? This is the book. These are the books, okay? So this is who he is. This is why we read it. This is why we study it. This is why we discern it, live it, that we might know Jesus. So rather than going back through all of the things that Matthew has told us about Jesus, I want to show you four pictures that he paints, and i got to do it quick, okay? I'm going to put them on the screen. Emma, will you bump those up there for me so that when I get going, you won't ask me what I said because I will forget just as much as you will. Nobody's going to remember this stuff, okay? I can say that. Maybe you will. Um, These are four pictures that Matthew paints of Jesus as he writes his narrative. And they're all important. They all could use series within themselves upon them. You don't want to force everything into these, but there is nevertheless this kind of recurring theme of Matthew saying, this is who Jesus is. Look back in verse number one of chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the what? Christ. Perhaps the primary objective in Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus is to say that the promised king has finally arrived and he has brought his rule and his reign and his redemption with him. That's why he's called Jesus the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Everybody shake your head. Christ is not his last name, right? You could get stuck with a last name, George. That's, that could be really horrible, right, Nadine? She just left, and, and she's really sad about all of that. Last name is not Christ. That is his title. It means he is the anointed one. And for all that anointing involves in the scripture, it involves kingly authority, to be clear. Anointing accompanied the installation of new kings in Israel's culture. It implied that whoever was being anointed is the chosen vessel of God. Do you hear it, family of God? Jesus is the chosen vessel of God. This is the promised king, the long-awaited king of Israel. He is God's new king, and that's why in verse number one, Jesus, Matthew says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? How come David is first and not Abraham? Anybody know who's older? Not like in here. We don't want to know who's older in here, so don't start shouting names. Father Abraham had many what? Many sons and many sons had? Anybody want to do the dance? 
Come on, anybody? Show us. We got one who do the dance. You're a brave soul. I'll let you do it. We'll just keep going. Uh, <laughs> how come none of you older people are that happy to be at church, right? So Abraham is first, but Matthew names David first. Why? Because God made a specific promise to David that there would always be an heir on David's throne. It means kingdom. It means king. And Matthew is telling the Jewish people that their king, all of the promises that are bound up in their king, and this is beautiful, all of the promises in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all of the other prophets, all of them are not bound up in an event. They are bound up in a person, and that person has broken into this world. He is King Jesus, and that is what Matthew is trying to tell us. Now, you can go on in chapter 2. The wise men will come far from the east, and they will say, where is he who is born what? King of the Jews, right? Again, Matthew is telling us that he is king. When Jesus is crucified, they put a sign above his head. Does anybody remember what it said? Here is the king of the Jews, right? We're with this, right? So Matthew is telling us that he's king of the Jews. It would be a mistake, however, to believe that Matthew is only telling us that he's king of the Jews. Do you remember how the gospel ends? Jesus collects his disciples and he says, all authority is given to me where? In heaven and on earth. Go you therefore and make disciples. Jesus, and Matthew is presenting this, and you cannot miss this. Matthew is predominantly presenting Jesus as king of the Jews, but he is also telling us that Jesus is king of the world. The whole world, not just the Jewish world. He is the king that every other king bows down to. That's what Matthew is telling us about Jesus. That's why wise men from the east come asking. They're Gentiles. They're not Jewish people. That's why centurions believe in Matthew's gospel. He's dropping these hints to tell us that, yes, it is first to the Jew, but it is not only to the Jew. He is not just the king of the Jew. He is the ruler of the world. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? He is Lord, ruler, king over all the earth. And so all of this, Matthew is telling us that Jesus Christ is the king, the promised king of all the world. Man, time would fail us to talk about the kingdom of God, which Jesus speaks about so much, or how his miracles and his teachings drive home this same truth. But if you want to understand Jesus in Matthew, you must understand that he is the promised king of the world, the one who rules and reigns. Hear me now, okay? If my understanding then is to be accurate and based upon the source material, my understanding of Jesus must have space for him to rule and reign. Now you say, oh preacher, that sounds a little hostile. You must understand that he does not rule or reign as an angry tyrant, but as a gracious and good redeeming king who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So jump into this second picture with me. Go back to chapter 1. This is the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus the Christ. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Matter of fact, if you come down here to verse number 21, when uh, Joseph has found out that Mary is with child and he is ready to put her away, and the Spirit appears to him and says to Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Matthew not only tells us that Jesus is this promised king, Matthew tells us that Jesus is this gracious redeemer. Whenever some of these things became clear to me, it just kind of, 
I felt like I finally arrived at kind of getting like good language for me to be able to explain who Jesus is in the scripture. And now if you were to ask me who Jesus is, I would tell you the same thing every time. He is the redeeming king. He's the redeeming king. He is fully both. He's not one then the other or one or the other. He is both. And that's Matthew, what Matthew is presenting here, that he is the redeeming king. He ties all of his lineage not only to David in verse number one, but to Abraham. Abraham, the promise to Abraham was that in you, the nations of all the world will be blessed. How will all the nations of the world be blessed? Through his seed, through the people of Israel, and through the seed bringing redemption, Jesus Christ. This is why the Spirit tells him to name him Joseph or Jesus. Yahweh saves. And as the Spirit further explains, he will save his people from their sins. Listen, something that you must understand about Jesus, this is what Matthew highlights. And this is what all of the New Testament highlights. That Jesus came to deal with sin. He came to deal with sin. We would much rather talk about something else that he deals with, but the scripture will remind us again and again. John will look at him and say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away what? The sin of the world. John, the beloved, will later say, My little children, these things I write to you that you won't sin. And if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And listen to this. He is the propitiation, the payment, the atonement for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the whole world, he says. John will later go on to say, you know that he was manifested, shown, presented to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. If you do not understand this about Jesus, then your understanding will be off that the Jesus who came and the Jesus who revealed came to deal with sin. His greatest service to humanity in Mark's gospel is to give his life a ransom for many. Through his substitutionary life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus would set people free from sin, from evil, from death, from hell. And all who would place their trust in him would find this. And I want to just say this before we get out of this, okay? Jesus came to deal with all of sin, not part of it. Okay, sit with me for just a moment. Because our understanding, we kind of think of sin as this thing that causes this separation between us and God. Is that correct? Everybody do this with me. Everybody do this with me, right? Do it until your neck hurts, right? Okay, this is true. But that is not the only effect of sin. Sin is far more cosmic in the scripture. Do you not understand this? Sin has ruined everything. Sin has ruined the cosmos. It has had social implications. Do you know why you had the spat you had on your way to work this morning? That's sin, whether your own or somebody else's. That's the way it has ruined us. And let me tell you this. Jesus said, I, whoever is free in me is free indeed. He didn't come to set us free from part of sin, but from the whole of sin. The whole empire of sin is going to be dealt its death blow. You need to understand this about Jesus, that the whole tyranny of evil, that all of the darkness and the corruption that exists within our hearts and even in this world that leads us by deceptive ideas into bondage, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, one day is coming when we will be freed from the presence, the very presence of sin. Do you understand this? Jesus did not come to fix part of your sin. He came to fix it all. Not to make things right, to make things new. Please hear me. He came to deal a death blow to the whole empire of sin within the human heart and within the human world. And all of creation longs for the redemption that he brings. This is fundamental to our understanding of Jesus Christ. There is a great tendency today, and we don't have time to really talk about it, 
but to make Jesus' work primarily about some political revolution. And I will tell you this, that there is no understanding of Jesus that does not have social implications. Okay? Shake your head again until it hurts. No understanding of Jesus that doesn't have that. However, if we reduce our understanding of Jesus to only the work that he does socially, you would be in great error. Jesus did not merely come to make things right here. He came to make all things new, and that includes you and I. The Jesus of Matthew is the gracious redeemer of all who come to him. Okay, let's, let's knock these last two out. Ready? He is a wise teacher. Uh, go over, if you will, to chapter 4 of Matthew Thank you for being patient with me. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all of Galilee in verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all of Galilee. And what was he doing as he went through all of Galilee? He was teaching in their synagogues. Skip down to chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up into the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. Came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he did what? He taught them, saying, okay, One of the aspects that Matthew paints for us, as a matter of fact, one of the aspects that all of the gospel writers will give ink to is the fact that Jesus was a teacher. That not only did his words stun people or his works, the things that he did, his words also stunned them. As a matter of fact, rabbi is what he is most often called in the scripture. Have you ever thought about this? Teacher is what he's most often called in the gospels. Remember Nicodemus comes to him and he says, We know you are a teacher come from God. When Jesus is resurrected, right, and Mary sees him in the garden, do you know what the first thing she calls him, the resurrected Jesus? She doesn't say, oh, mighty, most high. You know what she says? She says, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 23 that to his disciples, you have only one teacher, and that is the Christ. The point here is this, is that Jesus is a teacher, He is a rabbi, and he speaks as one who has authority. If you were to go to the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 7, the end of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, verse number 28, listen to what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings or these teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. Do you know what prophets and Old Testament mouthpieces of God would say? They would say, thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Do you know what Jesus says? Verily, verily, or if you are King James like some of us, truly, truly, I say unto you. This is authority. This is Jesus going, I am the source of the revealed will of God. I'm him. I know it. I am the authoritative source on the way to live, on the way to please God, on what God wants. And this is the way that Jesus is presenting himself as this incredibly wise teacher. As if he is the absolute source on all of reality. Sit with me in this for just a moment. What if Jesus is not only right about how to get to heaven? What if Jesus is right about everything? What if, like, what if Jesus knows how to work at Kimray? What if Jesus knows how to run his own business? What if Jesus knows how to run a roofing company? Good luck, Brent. What if Jesus knows how to be a teacher or a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife? What if he's not just right about doctrine? What if he's right about everything? What if you dropped your phone right now? Could Jesus fix it, your iPhone, your precious iPhone? 
I bet he could. Whether he would or not, that may be subject to a whole other debate, right? But the reality is this, is no truth is new to him. He knows everything and he presents himself as the authority on life and all things in it. And so he is our, our teacher and he literally expects people to learn from him how to live and move and have our way in this world. This is the point. Listen to the way he sums up his teaching in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears the words of mine and what? Does them. The contrast in the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand is not what they thought about Jesus. It's not what they agreed with in Jesus. It is about what they did with what they heard. It is his will and our wisdom then to do his will. He is the template for humanity. The way humanity was always intended to be. If you ever wanted to know what your life was intended to look like, Jesus is that answer. He is. I believe this is an aspect of Jesus that gets so lost on us. And what we say is this, that Christ is more than a teacher. And he is, right? I understand what we mean by that. We don't want to minimize Christ and reduce him to only a teacher. But he is definitely more than a teacher, but he is certainly not less. And one of the things that we have lost sight of in saying that and trying to stand on good truth is that we've lost sight of the fact that Jesus, in his mind, expects us to learn from him how to live life. And in his mind, that's not earning the favor of God. In his mind, that's not legalism. In his mind, that's not fanaticism or securing the blessings of God or manipulating Yahweh. That is our will, his will and our wisdom. That's why Paul will say, be conformed to the image of Christ. That's why the earliest followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. It's why John says that if any man says he abides in him, he needs to do what Jesus did. That's why James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. It is clear that Jesus expects his followers to take their cues on how to live in this present world from him. For us to be learners and practitioners of the things that he says and he does. This is the Jesus of Matthew. He is an all-wise teacher. Last one. Jesus is a mighty healer. You know this, right? Beginning in verse number eight, Jesus goes through and he begins to demonstrate his power over everything. He demonstrates his power over the physical world by healing all kinds of manner of diseases and sickness. He touches the leper. The leper is cleansed. He heals the centurion's daughter. He goes on and on throughout all of this. And what he's doing is he's demonstrating his power over every element, over the physical realm, over the spiritual realm, over the natural realm where he speaks to the winds and the waves and they immediately obey his voice. He speaks to demons and they do what he says. He forgives sin and nobody does that but God. Nobody does the things he does but God. And the miracles do two things at least. They attest to his identity. They prove that he is who he says he is, that he is the redeeming king, that he is the wise and right teacher that he is who he says he is. That's why only le leper, leper worships God. Only God receives worship. That's why the disciples will say, what manner of man is this? But the miracles not only attest to his identity, they reveal his heart. Look at Matthew chapter 8. And I want you just to look at the question that the leper asked Jesus. In verse number 2, he says this. The leper came and he knelt before him and he said, Lord, 
if you will, you can make me clean. And put that in easier terminology for us. You can, but do you want to? Do you, like, think about this. Have you ever struggled with this? Like, not, I, I know Jesus can help. It's not my question. Does he want to? That's what I struggle with. And you know what Jesus did? He touched the leper. I'm willing. I'm willing. Be thou clean. Yes, I'm willing. Be thou clean. And he wants the leper to know, not only can I, but I want to. That's why Matthew in chapter 9 will say that he looked out across the masses and he was moved with compassion as he looked upon them, for they were sheep without a shepherd. This is his heart revealed to us in this mighty healer. And all of this are the pictures that Matthew paints for us. So this is the Christ of Matthew. It is not exhaustive. Can I just say this? More can be said about Jesus. More will be said about Jesus. But even once everything is said and done with Jesus, Jesus will still be beyond us. With me? He will still be more than my mind can grasp, without boundaries, without limits, beyond my capacity. Indescribable he is, but he is knowable. Indescribable, yes, but knowable, yes. And Matthew records these images of the man Christ Jesus, and then he throws the information back to the readers and says, this is who he is, now choose. So look at chapter 11, and we will land this plane on this. You've been very patient with me. They should have never gave the old guy 11 chapters to preach. Matthew chapter 11, right before we're going to get back into chapter 12, when Pastor Nathan gets back into the book of Matthew. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to what? Me. Come to, say it again, me. Come to me. This is Jesus' invitation. It's an invitation. He doesn't force it. Come to me, he invites. Come to me all, absolutely all. The invitation is broad, who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Do you know what laboring people need? Do you know what heavy laden people need? They don't need directions to Walmart. They need rest. The very thing they need, Jesus says, that's who I am. Come to me and find exactly what your heart is craving and longing for. And then he says it again. Take my yoke. Join with me. Unite with me. And in case you forgot that Jesus is the teacher, he says, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are correct in our understanding, this is the only place that Jesus talks about his heart. And he says it is gentle and lowly. In other words, you never find Jesus like this. You always find Jesus like this. So come to him, he says. Come to him, come to the promised king, and in yielding to him, you will find a better authority. Do you understand this? That we, I think that our, underst- our thought that there is, I want life with no authority. I think that's, I don't know this. 
Like, I feel like there's nothing new under the sun, like some wise dude said that a long time ago, right? But it does really seem like we believe that there is some life that we can achieve that has absolutely no authority. That's a lie. You know who that makes the authority? You. And I don't know about you. I'm not trying to point fingers. But every time I've been in authority, I've done a very poor job of it. My track record bears out the fact that I am not fit to run the show. Jesus is a better ruler, a better authority, a good and gracious king. And in yielding to him, I find such a better authority. P.T. Forsyth said the first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Something rules you. Something rules me. And there is a far better ruler in Jesus. And in yielding to him, I would find that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to the promised king. Come to the gracious redeemer. And in receiving his grace, find actual and lasting freedom. Come to the wise teacher and learning from him, living in his ways. Find the way to live and move and have your being here on earth. Come to him who is the mighty healer and trust in confidence. Find grace and mercy and help at time of need. Come to him. Let's land this bird. Come to him, not part of him. Come to him, not an aspect of him. Jesus is not divided. He is not king, redeemer, or teacher, or healer. He is all, and he says, come to me. Sometimes at life, these will resonate in deeper and different ways. But Jesus is always all. Make no attempt to smooth the edges out on Jesus. Live in the tension. Come to the whole Jesus. We need the whole Jesus, not something that resembles him. This is Jesus the Christ. This is God with skin on him. This is God with us. This is God for us. This is God in us. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you have awakened our heart to your beauty. I pray that this has not been an information dump. But that you have planted seeds even now in our hearts and in our minds that will continue to bear fruit as we leave from this place, as we think upon your word and your beauty and your character and who you are and how that fits and how that relates to where we are and how we came in and what we're walking out of these doors up against. But I pray that it would not fall on deaf ears. I pray that your son, dear father, has been lifted up in our hearts. And in lifting him up, that all other things have fallen into perspective. Lord Jesus, please make yourself known among your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.